1 Thessalonians chapter number 4. We started our study through uh, on this topic of the rapture last week. We're continuing and probably we'll have one more week talking about it after our revival. Two key passages I mentioned already, 1 Thessalonians 4, the one we're going to read tonight, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 57. Many other ancillary passages, but these are the two key passages. Just to remind you, last week we talked about the word. What is the word rapture? It, it, it is not a word you find in the Bible. It is drawn from both Latin and uh, Greek roots, but it means to catch away or to snatch. And it's speaking of that upcoming event when the Lord that we're going to read about here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 comes with a shout and the, the trumpet sound, the dead in Christ shall be raised first and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. There's the word, rapture. Caught up together with them and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So that's what the word means. So that's what we talked about last week. By the way, I enlarged the font a little bit for you back row Baptists, so let me know if that's uh, helping you out at all, okay? If I have to enlarge a little more, I will, or you can move forward. Uh, and then we talked about what the Bible teaches that the rapture is from 1 Corinthians 15. The Bible teaches it's a mystery. In other words, something we did not know in, from Old Testament documents, but now the truth is being brought forth to us in the New Testament. It is first, as I said, uh, the uh, dead in Christ rising, and then secondly, those alive being caught away. As I was uh, caught up to be with the Lord, as I was doing some review uh, today, getting ready for tonight, I was reading Adrian Rogers' book. It's on, on end time events. It's called Unveiling the End Times in Our Time. I, I like this illustration, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read it to you very quickly. He said, if you were to sprinkle silver, gold, silver, zinc, copper, and iron on the ground, and then sweep a giant electromagnet over those particles, some of the metal would rise to meet the magnet, but others would stay on the ground. The silver, gold, zinc, and copper would stay, but the iron would gravitate up to the electromagnet. Why? Because it has the same nature as the magnet. When Jesus comes again, those who are heaven-born will be heaven-bound. I wish I was smart enough to say stuff like that. I'm only smart enough to quote smart people, but... Anyway, that, that's a great illustration. That's, that's what's going to happen. We've been saved. We have the likeness of Christ, the presence of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus calls us out, we're going to go. And uh, so that's what the Bible says it is. The Bible says it's an instantaneous event. It, it's not a gradual wave. It, it will happen in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye. It's an immediate event. It's a final event. Nobody gets to say, well, Lord, wait, hang on. Just give me a few more minutes. Uh, none of that is going on. And it is that instant 
when we are changed from this mortal body to immortality, forever we will be with the Lord. So that's what we discussed last week. Notice 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 13. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that ye sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now, I know at one time in the past, I told you this story, true, true story. When I was a teenager, there was an evangelist that I loved to hear preach. His name was Al Lacey. And Al Lacey was a storyteller. The guy could paint a word picture like none other. And I can remember at a youth rally held at our church in Vista, California, where he preached on the soon coming of the Lord, the rapture. And the whole story, the whole message was a story about how Gabriel kept wanting to blow his trumpet and it was hanging there on the wall in heaven and the father kept saying, no, it's not time, no, it's not time, no, it's not time. I mean, and he never preached a short sermon. So this is 45 minutes to an hour of this whole dialogue and weaving in scriptural truth the whole time. But then he, he sets you up for it and he says, and at that time when he set the trumpet to his lips, he took a deep breath and and he had somebody staged in the back with the trumpet and I was like I'm looking around nobody else is going and then he said bow your heads and close your eyes went right into the invitation and he said now that wasn't the Lord's trumpet but if it were would you have gone let me tell you that was powerful That was powerful. You know what? You you can decry his style, but I'm going to tell you something, folks. We need to get back to understanding it's just that real. It is just that real. One day. You know, we've gotten away from preaching on the imminency of the Lord's return, and we've gotten sort of dull toward this, and we've gotten a little careless about it. And I pray that as we're spending these weeks together, considering these things to come, that the Lord will once again stir in our hearts what it really is all about and how we should live in light of that day. Well, tonight I want us to begin talking about when does the rapture occur in relation to other end time events? Now, there are several schools of thought on this. There are three main viewpoints regarding the timing, two of which I strongly believe are incorrect, and I'll cover those very briefly, and then tell you why I believe in the pre-tribulational, premillennial rapture. The first wrong view in my estimation, according to the word of God, is those who believe that the rapture will occur in the middle of the tribulation. If you know your Bible much, you know the tribulation is seven years. And that the first three and a half years 
will be nominally bad. The next three and a half years will be atrociously bad. I've heard people say, well, the first three and a half years will be okay. Uh, read it. Read it. You don't want to be here even in the first three and a half years. But there are those who believe that uh, after three and a half years, Christ will come with his saints and, uh, and, and, and that will be the time of the rapture. This was uh, promoted greatly some years ago by a writer by the name of Marvin Rosenthal in a book called The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. I don't believe that's what the Bible teaches. Second wrong view, in my opinion, is post-tribulation. The post-tribulationists believe that Christians were going to go through the seven years of tribulation. At the end of that, Christ will come with his saints and immediately uh, will be raptured out, but then immediately return and set up the millennial reign. That was a very popular view prior to World War II. Because the world, though the Great War, World War I, uh, was awful in its carnage, it was nothing uh, in comparison percentage-wise and volume-wise to World War II. And so there were many liberal theologians promoting uh, that position. Uh, I'm afraid it's making a comeback uh, in these days, but I, I would disagree with both of those. Uh, the doctrinal position of Faithway Baptist Church, my own personal position is it, that there will be a pre-tribulation rapture of the saints. Jesus coming for his saints will take place before the tribulation begins. And there are several reasons why I would say that. First of all, Jesus promised both in Revelation chapter 3 to the church of Philadelphia and also in 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number 9 where the Bible says God hath not appointed us to wrath but to obtain salvation. The word means deliverance by our Lord Jesus Christ. The letter to the church of Philadelphia Jesus said, because thou hast kept the word of my patience, I also will keep thee from the hour of temptation. These verses and others indicate to me that believers are not going to go into or through any part of the time of great tribulation. A second reason why I believe that's the case is Revelation chapter 2 and 3 are the letters to the seven churches. And I, my position is that they, they could be church history, but certainly there are churches like those churches in this church age. But if you look at the very first verse of Revelation chapter 4, following the letters to the seven churches, Revelation 4 says, verse 1, And I looked... And behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. Now, I, I, I'm not going to categorically say that that's talking about the rapture, but that's my personal impression. Come up hither. And here's what's interesting. The church 
is not mentioned again in the book of Revelation after that verse. So the rapture takes place. The church is no longer on earth enduring what's going on in the tribulation. The church has been called out, come up hither. The third reason, turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. We were in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter number 1. I, I love chapter 1. It talks about these Thessalonians who were pagan idolaters. They got saved. They took the word of God as the word of God, not as the word of man. But notice, as Paul is encouraging them and giving their testimony here in verse number 9. For they themselves show of us what manner of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Notice verse 10 now. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. Notice that the focus of these New Testament believers was that Christ was coming for them. The focus wasn't that, hang on, because you're going to go through the trouble. And our attention as New Testament believers, you, you read the passages, our attention is to be looking for his coming for us. We're looking for that voice, our Lord to appear in the sky, for him to call us out. We're not told to be looking forward or toward the fact that we have to endure and this, the, the tribulation is coming. And the fourth reason is that in these two key passages, which I mentioned to you both, they both have an element of comfort, encouragement. It's not comforting to me Neither is it encouraging to me after reading Revelations chapters 6 through 18 and all that the tribulation entails that I might have to go through that. My comfort and my encouragement is that my Savior's coming for me and he's going to take me out of this world. And part of what goes on during the tribulation and we'll deal with that when we get there is because the presence of God's Spirit is removed. Because where is the Holy Spirit? He indwells believers. If all the believers are gone, the influence of the Holy Spirit from this world is gone, and things rapidly go downhill very quickly. So this is when the rapture will occur. Prior to the tribulation, prior to battle of Armageddon, prior to the millennium, prior to all of those events. Sometimes through the years, I've had believers very sincerely come and say, Pastor, I'm just, I'm, I'm concerned about this. I'm nervous about this. When, what about this event? And I don't want to be flippant, but quite often I say, let me, let me just give you some comfort. If you're saved, you don't have to worry about that. You're not going to be here. It's not 
that yes, you need to know. Yes, it has impact on how you deal with people, your passion for people around you and, and wanting to see people saved. But as far as a personal experience, that is not going to be for you. And uh, we'll be with the Lord. So tonight we're gonna to take a few moments now and just talk about the event, the rapture. What is the nature of this event when Jesus comes? Well, first of all, I want us to think about the reality of it. We read tonight in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 16, the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout. The first reality of this is Jesus is coming himself. The Lord isn't just sending somebody for us. The Lord himself is coming for us. That's one thing to have somebody come and say, oh, so-and-so would like to see you and you go. It's another thing to have that individual themselves themselves come. You remember in Acts chapter 1 when the Lord ascended up to heaven right after he gave his great commission that ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you and ye shall be witnesses unto me, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the world. And the Lord ascended. I, I've, I've tried to visualize that in my own mind, how the disciples were awestruck watching the Lord caught away in the cloud. There must have been sort of a silence there. They didn't know what to say. They saw something that they never imagined they would see. But then immediately an angel came and delivered the Lord's message. Basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing now, why are you standing here looking up in heaven? This same Jesus will so come in like manner. The Lord is coming for you, child of God, personally. Personally. As the bridegroom comes to meet and take away his bride, that is what Jesus is doing in that day. Not only is he coming personally, this is a bit redundant, but I think it needs to be stated, he's coming physically. The language of these verses about the Lord's ascension, they're particularly in Acts chapter 1, and is coming again, are, it's the verbiage of a real person, not some kind of a phantom, not, not, not some ethereal emanation, but he is coming personally and he is coming physically. And I think that is significant. But thirdly, he is coming visibly. Visibly. We shall see him. Acts 1.9. As you've seen him go into, uh, go into heaven, he shall in like manner come again. 1 John 3 verse 2 says, we shall see him as he is. Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, Every eye shall see him. Now, I don't believe that's talking about 
every eye of every person on earth. It's talking about every eye of every born-again believer. We won't be having to jostle for position. We will see him. That's a wonderful truth. A wonderful truth. The reality of this. This isn't a dream. You know, sometimes you have a dream and you wake up from it and you go, whew, I'm glad that was a dream. Or you say, oh man, <laughs> I wish that was real. Jan has not been feeling well. Today was her first day back to work, but she was probably wiped out. But uh, she's not here, so I can't ask permission to tell this story. But she told me last night, uh, we were having dinner on the back deck there, and she said, man, I had a dream last night that you were giving away everything you own. <laughs> and you didn't even ask me about it. I said, well, it's my stuff. <laughs> and she said, I'm standing there watching people going through our house, and you're giving away this, and you're giving away that, and you're giving, you're giving away all your stuff. And I'm standing there saying, man, that's sort of like what he'd do. He doesn't want to move it. <laughs> and then she woke up and goes, whew. I'm glad that wasn't real. You know, sometimes we have those kind of dreams. This isn't a dream. Jesus really, physically, personally, visibly is coming for his bride to take her away. You know, one of the, I've told you before, one of the most enjoyable things I do as a pastor in, is when performing a wedding ceremony, standing here next to the groom, waiting for that music change and everybody to get their act together out there, and those doors to open and the bride to step in. I normally glance just to make sure it's the same right person, but sometimes you're not sure. But then I look at him. And as much as I'm supposed to be watching her, I have a whole lot more fun watching him. Why? The groom can hardly wait to take his bride away. That's the picture the Lord wants us to have. He loves us. We belong to him. We're to be so anticipating that day that we can hardly wait for our groom to come for us. That's the picture. That's the reality. But secondly, I want you to know, finally tonight, the description. Turn to Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16. <clears throat> Look at... verse number 27. This is right after the Lord rebukes the hearers there and you and me for verse 26. What is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 27. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels and then... He shall reward every man according to his works. Turn to chapter 24 of Matthew and verse number 30. It 
says, and then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. On to chapter 25 and verse number 31. When the Son of Man shall come in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then shall he sit upon the throne of his glory. Now, a couple of those verses are talking about his second coming when he's coming to establish his millennial throne. But there's a consistency here that I want you to notice. Number one, I want you to notice that he's coming with an external glory that will be amazing to behold. A glory beyond anything that we can imagine. We were not privileged to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration when those three disciples saw a glimpse of his glory. The Lord had set aside his glory at the incarnation when he took on flesh. God sort of opened the, the veil just a little bit so those three on the Mount of Transfiguration could see the brilliance of his glory, close it again. That glory was restored at his ascension and now we will see him coming with external Glory, glory. The word speaks of splendor, brilliance or brightness, majesty, a most glorious condition, a most exalted state. He's coming in his glory. He's coming with intrinsic power. In other words, it's not power he accepted externally, it is power from within himself. There in chapter 24 and verse 30, it talks about this power. And, the, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. In the rapture, his omnipotence will be on display, evident for all to see. And thirdly, he's coming with angelic or royal escort. Repeatedly in these passages that we've read, it talks about with all the holy angels with him. In 2 Thessalonians 1, and verse 7, it says, And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So he's coming with to reveal his glory, or he will reveal his glory. That's not the purpose, it's just a fact. He's coming, and we will see his omnipotence, that which we have believed but not seen demonstrated tangibly, we will see that, and with his royal escort. What a day that will be. When my Jesus I shall see. And the look upon his face. I mean, just we sing about it, but sometimes we allow those words to just sort of run through our brain and out our mouth, and we don't stop and think about it. You know, we need to get thrilled again with the anticipation of seeing our Lord face to face. That day's coming, friend. It's coming, and we need to look forward to it. 
Now, on purpose tonight, I planned our Bible study to be just a little bit uh, more brief because I wanted to end our service tonight with us just taking, uh, which we did not do early in the service, taking a few moments of quiet, that we would pray for our upcoming revival. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to, and we're just gonna take a few moments and then I'll close in prayer. Number one, I want you to pray that you would be ready for what God wants to do in your heart. So that means you're doing some personal evaluation. Lord, search me, know me, try me. So pray that God would work in your heart, that you would be different as a result of these days that we spend together. You know, sometimes we need reviving, not because of sin, but sometimes we need reviving just because the, the pressures of life, the, the struggles of life have gotten us burdened down and we need those burdens lifted. Whatever it is that you need, ask God to provide it. He can, he will. And then secondly, pray for our church. Folks, this is God's church and we want God to do whatever God wants to do in his church. Our desire is to be a church where he receives all the glory. So if there are things that need to be resolved, if there are things that need to be dealt with, that God would do those things. So that we, like that spiritual electromagnet, can draw people who have same heart, same mind, to worship together with us and serve the Lord here. And then thirdly, pray for those that we will have contact with that need to be saved. Every Sunday, we have unsaved people in our service. I'm absolutely convinced. And it'd be tragedy for us to plan and pray and do all that we've done for this few days of revival services for a lost person to come into the service and to leave and not know Christ. Monday night, a man came up to the door looking for help and one of our men engaged him in a conversation, witnessed to him and we're praying that he'll come and that he'll get saved. Right now that man thinks he may be demon possessed. I don't know, that's, that's God's business, but I know what the answer is, Jesus. He needs Christ. And maybe you have people specifically you're burdened for, you've invited, you're praying that they'll come, now let's take a few moments and pray. So pray for yourself, pray for the church, and pray that God would be honored in the saving of souls in these days.